0: Well, welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. It's with great honor today that I talk with Richard Dixie out of Oakland, California. And we're going to be speaking about a new book uh, from New World Library. And this book is three-minute, a 14-week course to learn meditation and transform your life. Richard, good day to you. How are you doing?
1: i'm doing well thank you nice to meet you and thanks for the introduction
0: well it's a pleasure having you on the show and it always excites me uh when somebody is interested in helping busy people try and figure out how they can meditate and kind of get rid of this monkey mind that keeps them from meditating most of the time and you and i are going to talk about this 14-week course and most importantly too. I know we live in a, you know, digital world. There's an app for that. There's an app for this book and you can get it on Google and you can get it uh, for iPhone as well. And we'll put a link to those in the blog entry uh, for everyone who's listening today. So, you know, not only is the book inexpensive, but you're getting a free application that goes with it. So Richard <laughs> is very committed to this. So let me let our listeners know a bit about you. Uh, Richard, he's a PhD, a scientist, and lifelong student of Asian philosophy. He runs the Light of Buddha Dharma Foundation in India uh, with his wife. And I'm hopefully I'm pronouncing it right. So why don't you say it? Because I don't it's want to Wang
1: Mu. Wa- powerful Wang Mo. mother, Wang Mu.
0: <laughs> and the eldest daughter, daughter of the Tibetan Lama. Tell me that. Oh, too. Okay. And he is the senior faculty at Dharma College in Berkeley and divides his time between California and India. And I know in October, he goes to India uh, and will be there. You can learn more about Richard and his book, his videos, everything that he's got at com. That will also be linked in our blog. And here's the book. We'll have a link to it at Amazon, Uh, so you can go get this book at Amazon. And this has been brought to us, as I was telling everyone, by New World Library. Uh, Thank you, Kim Corbin, for always bringing us great authors. We really appreciate it. She's a wonderful person. Well, Richard, um, you know, first off, when you say three minutes a day, it's a kind of a conundrum. You know, I just got back from a meditation retreat on the Orcas Islands. And um, I don't think there was one meditation that was three minutes long, but uh, speak with us about this whole what drove you to want to write a book about three minutes a day. And you say in less than five hours on this, you know, 14 week course, which is about five hours that people could really get into meditation and change their lives.
1: OK, um, so, you know, I, I'm a faculty member at Dharma College which is a college we set up in Berkeley, um, and it's dedicated to reimagining wisdom. This means to take the Asian meditation traditions and express them in modern language. And it was because of that that I started teaching meditation. And I realized that the traditional methods of teaching meditation are essentially for monks. And, you know, that's their day job. (laughs) And so consequently, there are long meditation periods because that's their day job. And really, I began thinking, I wonder if we could shorten this and make it more more targeted. And indeed, within the Tibetan tradition, this is indeed the way they do it. They say a little and often is better than the long and badly um and so you know it was really both informed by the tibetan tradition and also by my own interest in meditation that's a but great book, statement the by
0: the way i not to interrupt that's a great statement little and often or long and not so good <laughs> yeah, i like it i like so the
1: it. issue but the issue is this and it, you know it's really very simple we're all victims of reflexive reactivity mm-hmm. now this is not a bug it's a feature. It's a feature of how our cognitive apparatus works. And what's happening in modernity is sophisticated advertisers and very clever computer programs, now, of course, artificial intelligence, are designed to capture our attention, to make us reactive. So we'll buy things or whatever they want to do to influence us. And this is very, very stressful. And so modernity is becoming more and more stressful because we're surrounded by more and more sophisticated devices literally taking us away from our focus. And meditation is precisely designed to address this. This is exactly the space in between you're
0: talking about. Well, yeah, because that's the space we're trying to get to because I said a second ago, the monkey minds for the individuals that are out there that have a list a mile long to do something, and now you're saying three minutes a day. Uh, speak about that because you you talk about this uh, concentrated repetition, but you also talk about this gap in between, which is where you were headed with this this reactivity, right? Um, that we we get involved in. How can we calm that? Ease that? What are, what are your Big hints here in the 14 week course.
1: Sure. Okay. So, you know, we need to look at our common language to see something very interesting. We have the word cognition and we have the word recognition. And when we say I recognize something, it means I quote, know it. I know what I'm looking at because I've recognized it. Now, there in the language is an understanding of a reflexiveness in our cognition that's very important to understand. What is recognition? Recognition is where we remember a prior example of whatever we've cognized and label it as one of those things. Now, normally we live in recognition. We don't walk around going, I don't know what this all is. We're in a room. We know what everything is because we're in recognition which means we live in a memory of experience rather than experience itself. We're in a map. Now, this mapping that is really a feature, not a bug, of our cognitive apparatus is how we know what we're doing. It's how we learn from experience. And it's how we've gone from being naked apes on the savannah to driving around in sports cars. This is the powerful faculty of human beings. But it has a problem. And the problem is, it is reactive. That's to say, the faster we can recognize, the more responsive we're going to be. So as a result, our recognitive is on a hair trigger, triggering immediately something grabs it. Now, the problem with that is it's stressful because all the time we're being grabbed. And what meditation is about is it's about addressing our own cognition and separating the recognitive from the cognitive and in that gap is something very very important now that's it can only be experienced if you do it there's no way of talking about it you've got to do it and we can go on and talk about how one might approach doing that but that's essentially what meditation is about
0: well so if that is what meditation is about how does this 14 week course help us attain those spaces that between the cognition and recognition i kind of i bruce lipton was on here the other day speaking about biology belief talking about the programs that are fed in right into the subconscious now that's that's a that's a big part of it but we have those pre-programmed into us already yes and we're saying now we need to reprogram those no we don't have to reprogram them well we we, well what we're trying to well tell us what you Okay, so I mean, okay. I this is really,
1: really important. So, recognition arises from our memory banks, and those memory banks are everything we've learned, all the experiences we've ever had, our background, our country, all our beliefs, sport teams we believe in, our unconscious mind, all of it colors up our recognition. So, we can, the, the technical word is we condition our experience by everything we know. Now, this is fine. If everything we knew was okay and there weren't problems in what we know. But of course, we all know we have opinions that we wish we didn't have. And also it would be fine if we didn't think that the world that we condition with our beliefs is the, quote, real world. Mm. The problem is we do. And furthermore, our education stresses that there is a, quote, real world out there that we can know. Now, this is utterly nonsensical. The only world we ever know is the world given to us by our five senses and our mind. There is no other world we can experience. And yet in the schooling system that we've all been through in contemporary culture, there is no mention of this basic fact of life. So along with reading and writing, we should be taught meditation. Now, what are we really talking about here? Reactivity stirs us up. It's like a glass of water with a bit of dust in it is being stirred continuously by being stirred this way and that way by things that are bothering us, capturing our attention. So the first step in any meditation practice, and this is absolutely canonical, you'll find it in the meditations that you've been taught in every meditation practice is to become calm. Now, the key is what does one mean by calm? What happens if you become calm is you get less reactive. And because you're less reactive, the water in the cup settles, the dust begins to settle out of it, and you start to see clearly. The word see clearly in Pali is vipassana, the famous vipassana. So calmness, shamata, leads to seeing clearly, vipassana, which means we make better decisions because we're not being pulled this way and that and being pulled around by our our reflexive reactivity. So the key is to learn how to become less reactive. Now, there are two ways you could become less reactive, and it's in the old joke. If you've got something that bothers your feet, you can cover the world with leather, or you can cover your feet with leather, one or the other. Now, modern culture has a habit of trying to cover the world with leather. So people literally go and live in gated communities, (laughs) hiding away from the world, retirement communities and all these things to try and keep away from things that bother them. It'll never work. What we need to do is cover our feet with leather. That way we can respond to what is happening without being reactive. Now to do that means to understand how our concentration works. And this is where there is an enormous key in the Asian traditions that I think is of enormous value to modernity. Now it's this. We've all been taught to concentrate. You know, you go to school, Johnny, concentrate. You know, your mother's like, concentrate. We all know that concentration is about focusing attention on a given object. But that kind of concentration, which is strictly speaking, adverting concentration is where the word advertising comes from you advert your attention to a chosen object, is brittle. It's brittle because if any other object turns up, it adverts to that. So it's, a, it's essentially moving around. And indeed, beginning meditators all say, the trouble is I try to advert my attention to a given object, then I've got all these thoughts, and then someone slams a car door, plays music, and I get disturbed. What do I do about that? Now, the mistake that many people make when they try to meditate is they think the answer is to shut out all the disturbing sounds, all the disturbing thoughts. In fact, many people think meditation is about having no thoughts. This is utterly incorrect, utterly incorrect. It's a total misunderstanding of what meditation is about. And it's because of this. There is another element to concentration. It's in, in the again, to use the old meditation language, adverting, placing your attention on something is called vitaka. And the other aspect of concentration is savoring. It's called vikara. And the trick is to develop vikara as you develop vitaka. It's literally like picking up a cup of, cu- cup of coffee and putting it to your lips. That's vitaka. And then savoring the experience of drinking the coffee is vikara. They're both concentration. They're both calm. But the ability to savor experience is inherently stable. What happens is as you develop the capacity to savor experience, so when things come to, quote, disturb you, they're merely added into the savoring instead Uh of dragging you away from one object to the next. So there are a series of exercises in this book I've written, which is- And it your app,
0: to, and um, your application. And my app, and, and the app. app. So um, question, Richard, do you, do you, did you write this as a way for people to ramp up to? It's like a plane taking off the runway, right? Um, obviously pilots have to be very astute to what's going on, the other planes and so on. but. Once you get into the air, you can kind of go on automatic pilot, now, This sure. might not be a that might not be a great analogy, but the analogy is is the book to help people who are get on going. the runway get off the runway so that they then could create a deeper practice of meditation. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, well I mean which,
0: which would be deeper, but, huh? Well, I mean, is, that, is that is that kind of how you would frame this or no? Yeah,
1: okay. So if I was to say to you um, I have a meditation experience I want to share with you. The problem is I can't pick it up and show it to you like I could an object because it's internal. There's no way of me showing it to you. So, how do we go about explaining what all this is? Well, I give a good, a good analogy. If I was to say to you, I'd like you to experience chocolate. Chocolate's a bit sweet, it's a bit sticky, it melts in your mouth no matter how many words I was to use to explain chocolate, you wouldn't have any idea what chocolate was. I could write you an encyclopedia on chocolate. You would have no idea what chocolate was. Give you a piece of chocolate. Oh, I know what chocolate is. This mm. book is designed to do just that. So what the I, de- I, say, I say to the reader, I'll explain what I want you to experience, how and why, like this bit is about reactivity, why it might be worth doing you just do it for three minutes a day for seven days and then we'll come back to the second chapter and we'll talk about something else another experience and then you do that for seven days and so it builds up like a very short course and the idea is in the end people have a taste of meditation they start getting what meditation is about and meditation is a very unusual skill it is a skill it's like playing the piano or playing golf or something but it is a skill to be able to see experience as experience and not see through experience at an external world. You're seeing experience as experience. Now, this is an extraordinarily liberating moment when one realizes that one is constructing a map of the world and you start seeing that construction. At that Mm -hmm. point, All kinds of benefits happen, the most important of which are, two: you get less reactive, so you're calmer and kinder, and you see alternatives that your map doesn't contain. Now, of course, as we all know, look, we're two white-haired old guys. As you get older, (laughs) the map gets more and more rigid, and you just see one thing because that's what it's telling you, and so you get less and less creative. But if you can see the map maker, suddenly you can look this way and that because you're no longer trapped by a reactive prison that's driving you down one road. And that increase in creativity and cognitive freedom is the real benefit of meditation.
0: And and I would advocate three minutes a day. Yeah, I would advocate to all of my listeners who have had challenges getting into meditation. This is definitely the book you want to pick up. This is definitely the book you want to read. I'm not saying it's not the book for the people that are seasoned meditators as well because we have challenges also and this is a way for us to kind of rejigger our ship i mean i'm a srf devotee you know you're talking about the crown chakra and you're talking about how you can have these very wonderful experiences and you can you know that vibrating purple light in your forehead can become part of your meditation practice what are the two elements of meditation and, and how are they kind of connected in your uh, estimation?
1: Well, as I say, all meditation in every school is of one or two types. There's calmness and there's insight. It doesn't really matter what school you practice within. You'll always find these two phases. These are fundamental to meditation. And so being able to generate clarity of mind, what's often called calm and clear, is the great fruit of meditation. Now, clearly, the real object we need to concentrate on is the mind itself, because really, at the end of the day, we're in a construct which is mind-created, and if we can come to understand the mind itself as a meditation object, really big benefits ensue, but there are many, many little tricks which one needs to learn to stabilize this. For example, there are these so-called obstacles that come up in the meditation manuals they're five there's so you ab- say five eight. obstacles yep. there are what famously are the five nivaranas, the five obstacles and they are intensely interesting because really although these were written down two and a half thousand years ago they're still absolutely relevant today and all the meditators experience them so there are five there are there's there's agitation and dull, and dullness there's attraction and aversion and there's doubt and these five features are very, very interesting, and learning how to overcome them with simple tricks is another way of moving away from just beginning to meditate to actually exploring the realm that meditation makes available. So this is something else that is addressed in the 14-week program to try to address these points and show what they actually are, because our reactivity is protective. It's paranoid. It's only interested in bad news. That's why the newspapers are always full of bad news. A a newspaper headline that said something went well isn't news. (laughs) We're not interested in what went well. We're interested in what went badly. Why? Because our recognitive faculty of mind is protective. It's looking for problems. Even if it's not our problem, we still read avidly about some community that's been hit by a tornado, whatever it is, even if we weren't hit by a tornado, we're still interested to know what went wrong. We're never interested to know what went right. That's of no interest to our protective mechanism at all. But there's a real key. This means when we start meditating, the danger is our paranoid recognitive apparatus begins going, oh, you're meditating badly or you're meditating well, you start getting all this judgment coming up from the very mechanism you're trying to see and learning how to dance with that judgment, how to work with that judgment until in in the end you're just meditating and there isn't a voice telling you it's good or bad or helpful or unhelpful or blissful or clear or any of this language. Once one gets to the point of seeing Rather than knowing, suddenly vistas appear which are otherwise invisible because our activity covers them over. And I actually begin the book with a quote from Wittgenstein, a very famous German philosopher who saw this. He said, the aim of philosophy is to free our natural intelligence from its bewitchment by language. That is such a quote. It's bewitchment by language. We're caught in a linguistic, recognitive bubble. Mm -hmm. And that bubble is fine as long as we're doing one thing. But, of course, it's extraordinarily limited and cannot deal with change. And so, again, if you look at modern conditions, climate change, environmental change, technological change, all this stuff is happening. People are really struggling to get to grips with it because they're not good at change
0: well and that again, bewitchment, to
1: is that flexibility
0: that bewitchment of language is approaching it from an intellectual standpoint and of course that's what's getting in the way and so I, I think that you know many people have approached meditation from an intellectual kind yeah, of careful
1: of the word intellectual it's a judgment well, okay, that maybe. i'm not sure i'm willing to accept Okay. It's a precise use of language. It is. Plain a, an issue about meditation. It's
0: not intellectual. Okay. So let's just say it's a way that it's explained. But what are the two phrases of concentration that you speak about in the book? The phases. The and Vikara. Well,
1: yep. these are the two phases. One is adverting. Uh-huh. And one is savoring. Uh-huh. And these two phases are absolutely important to understand And it's very, very important to ride Vitaka, ride one's ability to concentrate into savoring. So honestly, the second chapter of this book takes as a meditation object a bell. And the reason for that is the sound of the bell fades. And as you follow the fading sound into silence, you're developing the capacity to savor a meditation object rather than fixate on it. And this ability to follow movement with concentration is a really important skill. And when you look at sportsmen, musicians, performers, you see they enter their performance. There's something inside their performance. That's why it's so bewitching when you see a performer doing well. What they've done is they've entered concentration as almost if like it's a zone. Instead of them being here and the object being there and they're kind of separate, they kind of come into it. Now, if I had an ambition, it would be that people become craftsmen of their own perception. Mm -hmm. They enter their perception and are in it instead of being observers of their perception. And this is a fundamental change. It's not a change that's difficult to bring about once one begins to understand how perception works. But that change means suddenly. You have this cognitive freedom that you always knew was there somewhere at your fingertips. And you're able to turn left and right instead of being stuck reactively doing this, which is how many of us land up living.
0: Well, there's all kinds of meditation, and people, many of our listeners out there familiar with walking meditations, or might be familiar with Tung Lin, they might be familiar with different practices that are being used to help someone. Um, you know in this case breathe in uh, Mm -hmm. challenge breathe out love but the focus whether it's a mantra or it's anything else speak with us about this because there's a lot of listeners out there that have their eastern philosophy practices that maybe they approach meditation with and um, I would like to know kind of what where you put all of that in this realm of the three minute sure uh, meditation
1: okay. all right so you're talking about meditation techniques now techniques, you know, one called right. skillful means right these are devices which you add on top of a fundamental skill
0: mm-hmm. to enhance
1: and promote it they're mm-hmm. not in themselves meditation they are skillful means so it's exactly you know i remember i'll give you a good example of this I, you know, years back, I was visiting a, a, a Buddhist monk in Kathmandu and I gave him a portable computer. And I said, hey, look on that. I'm giving you this thing. You've no idea what this is, but you know, it's going to make your monastery much more efficient. Blah, blah, blah. He looked at me and went, Oh, this is a skillful means. This is like my Bell and Vajra and my and my, my mala. Thank you so much. He wasn't in any way phased by what I thought was this amazing gift I'd given him. And it suddenly dawned on me then what this is. The fundamental skill is to become non-reactive and cognitively free. Then you can do your Tonglen. You can do your breathing in and out. You can explore your chakras. You can do many, many, many different things. They come after. You cannot do it the other way around. None of those techniques work unless you are calm and clear. They simply don't. All that happens is they become objects of attachment. And there are many, many long-term meditators who who I've interacted with who've thanked me for this point because often these techniques become an end in themselves. They are not. They are a means, a skillful means. They're not an end in themselves. And this is a really important distinction to make. So, of course, there is a huge superstructure within these two and a half thousand year old traditions of skillful right. means, there are literally thousands of them
0: well your book is around the fundamentals let's it's around it. the
1: fundamentals and yeah. fundamentals
0: and and that's what's important and i and i relate this story and you'll probably relate to it really well when i was in the meditation retreat <clears throat> um the leaders of the retreat said a rembushay came to the united states and you know, on one end was the Buddha, on the other end was a skeleton, was doing a walking meditation. He says, Is there anything that I can get for you, Rinpoche? And he says, I'd like to get one of those watches that were set on alarm. You've probably heard this. And, and no, he I haven't said, actually. Yeah, go on. They said, oh, So what do you want a watch to set an alarm? He said, well, I'm going to set it for every 10 minutes. So the watch goes off. He's like, what, it, what do you mean? He says, Because every 10 minutes it's going to, or every hour, I'm sorry, every hour. It reminds me I'm one hour closer to death. Now, the interesting part is in that walking meditation, at one end is a skeleton, at the other end is enlightenment, Buddha. I thought that was a pretty interesting request that the Rinpoche had, which was to get a watch that would remind, and you're talking about tools. It's another tool, like the bell, like the bowl, uh, that w- he wanted to use to remind himself that he was one hour closer to death. I thought that Absolutely. was pretty interesting interesting
1: story but you know there's something there's something important here again let's just say this so there are thousands of types of chocolate prime sweet chocolate whatever if you've never tasted chocolate they're all an enigma to you Mm -hmm. once you've tasted chocolate you can explore the world of chocolate it's like that Mm -hmm. so unless you can enter meditation and understand what meditation is All of these techniques become essentially meaningless. They become philosophically interesting, but they have no value. Now, of course, we should use death as an advisor. That's not because we're trying to be life negating. It's because actually, if we use death as an advisor, we'll take wiser decisions. Of course, we won't be so stupid and go after things that don't matter. But that really doesn't help us if we're not already meditating. All it might do is make us pessimistic. And, you know, there's something really, really interesting here. And it's the word nirvana. Now, nirvana is normally translated as snuffing out. It sounds very nihilistic. And indeed, many people, religious people think, oh, Buddhism's nihilistic. It's life denying. Not interesting." Actually, there is another translation of the word nirvana, which I think is much closer to the truth of it. A vāna is a prison, and nirvana is to have no prison. Mm -hmm. Now, the words that the Buddha is recorded as having said at the moment of the Enlightenment was, Oh, house builder, you have been seen. I will not let you build a house for me again. Your roof beam is broken. Your rafters are shattered. Now, this is an intensely interesting quote. What is it referring to? It's referring to the house of concept, the recognitive construction within which we live. If we can become free of cognitive construction, so cognitive construction becomes an advisor rather than a precursor to our experience, we will become free. And this freedom is non-trivial. There is no such thing as going on holiday and finding freedom. All you do is go on holiday and take your prison with you and sit there on the beach going, I'm still just as stressed, but I'm reading a book now. The freedom we all seek is before us when our recognitive prison is set to one side. And, you know, there are many, many fairy tales about this. You know, it's the emir in Aladdin and, and the Thousand and One Nights, the story of the emir who's sleeping on his throne because the evil vizier has taken over the empire. And eventually the sultan awakens and says, look, vizier, you're an advisor. I'm the boss. Or oh, in Lord of the Rings, where the king of Rohan is asleep on his throne and, you know, the evil guy has taken away his empire. We're in that position. Our cognitive freedom, our natural intelligence, is bewitched—literally bewitched—by an advisor. And this advisor, quote, knows, but what does it know? It knows what it knew. That is the problem. It knows what it knew, which means we go round and round in circles because we repeat what we know.
0: What meditation? will do for the listeners and for those who have never practiced or for those that have practiced, I think what we could say is in the eye of a storm, um, you know, where the calm is and then the perimeter where it's very chaotic, it allows you to s- to see the chaos in a completely different way and it allows you to approach your life and things you do Uh with much more calm and ease. That's why they say meditate in the morning, whatever arises then gives you the ability to see it with much more opportunity to adjust to, adjust to it. What are the three R's and how can you help us deal with those disruptive thoughts during a meditation? Um, you talk about relax, release and return. Uh, I think those would be really good ones for the listeners to know.
1: Sure. You know, I used to be a chief executive of a pharmaceutical company for 14 years. So I did, I dealt with a lot of stress in business. I wish I had had then a stable meditation practice because there were days when I got really frazzled. Now, when you start getting frazzled, what you need to do is release, relax, and respond. Now, the ability to release means we need to have the taste of chocolate. If we don't have the taste of chocolate, what are we releasing into? And so you can't just say to someone, oh, relax. (laughs) Because if they've never ever understood how to separate reflexive reactivity from their innate clarity of mind, if they've never understood that distinction, that, that instruction is really quite useless. All they'll do is sleep at best and probably won't even do that. But once you've had that taste, you can disconnect from things that are freaking you out, even for five seconds. And in that five seconds, suddenly clarity of mind, I know what I need to do now. And that capacity to disconnect, we we, we normally associate it with wisdom. We talk about, you know, in sports, they say, oh, I've hired an experienced coach who knows things. What they mean by that? What they mean is that guy, when the team is down, say, you know, twenty points, is able to disconnect, have a look, and say, "I know what we need to do. We need to do this." That is the the wisdom of experience. Now you can access that. We all have it. We have huge amounts of information carried in our memory. The key is to be able to access that information without this reflexive knowing that otherwise. Takes us over, and I would say this is a fundamental element of success. And when you look at the biographies of successful people, you often see they have this capacity to step aside, just for a moment, and see yeah. things another way. And that again is a skill that can come from meditation.
0: Well, it's about connecting the dots when you're seeing. the and dots, you can see. So, if you learn how to connect the dots, you could make better decisions. Uh, You also can almost be a prognosticator of something that's going to happen and thwart that as a result of your meditation practice and those practices. Now, one of the things is you you talk about is uh, contrast meditation. Mm -hmm. Um, Speak with the listeners about that. I don't think many of them have heard that term before. Sure, uh, but I'd love to understand a little
1: more. Yeah, yeah. So if you've got stiff shoulders. You're always told to tense your shoulders, mm-hmm. and you relax, and relax, right? Tense, yeah. and then relax, right? Right. Well, it's exactly the same with contrast meditation. What you're trying to do is to make a contrast. Now, the contrast, you know, the 14 week thing is particularly interesting it is the contrast between recognitive knowing and the knowing that can arise without that recognitive signal. And that contrast is very interesting. Now we can generate that contrast once we start accessing our sensations. The one that's particularly interesting is the the sensation of hearing. Now, interestingly, hearing is what makes meaning. For example, if you watch the TV with the sound off, all you have is images. You really have no idea what's happening at all. If you watch a film with the sound off, it could be about almost anything. If you turn the images off and just have the sound, You have a complete story. Sound makes meaning. Now, in exactly the same way, you can sit by an open window and you can close your eyes and just listen. Now, you can do this in two ways. In one way, you listen intently to try and work out what's going on, what's happening, who's where, where the cars are, what's that. You really try to listen. Then you drop it and just let the sound Wash over you. Now, that contrast is very, very revealing because what it reveals is the difference between mapped experience and unmapped experience. Now, in unmapped experience, suddenly there is a sense of freedom and there's also no me. The me that seems such an irreducible center of experience is actually part of a map Mm -hmm. there's no me in actuality it is a mapped recognitive structure that is designed to enable memory to access prior examples and anyone who has actually experienced their sense inputs without mapping them realizes they're not two things there's only one we're this one with the whole enormous hole. discovery <laughs>
0: yeah i think i think i say we're one with the whole meaning the we're
1: ocean. one with. you could say the whole or yeah, we're one with I mean, our experience i mean whatever you want i mean i like
0: i like the saying that you know it's like the drop of water in the ocean um, no you know not
1: really no, no the word ocean is a is a is a i understand ocean.
0: it's confines that's true no not just that an,
1: it's an inference you're making that there is an ocean all we are is our experience that's the truth of it there's no ocean there's merely the huge expanse of our own experience that's where we are a drop in but we are actually the ocean that's the truth of it we're being fooled by the waves the waves look very real and interesting on top underneath is this cognitive expanse and again once we learn not to be reflexive, we start feeling this cognitive expanse. Now, this, this idea of hidden inference is actually very important. And we often use hidden inferences like the ocean or the universal or whatever as if they are, quote, real. But when we start looking more closely, we'll see those are also inferential categories. And really what we have is just the actuality of experiential input. That's, that's where we live. That's yeah, the we're using, we're using
0: language, Richard, to explain or try and put something in context. And while that may at times be restrictive in nature, um, it's a way for people to kind of understand things. But I think the most important thing is, is what do you want the readers in our time remaining to actually take away from uh, your new book? Here it is, folks. It's three minutes a day. This is a 14-week course to learn meditation and transform your life. And don't forget, we'll put a link to the application for all those who want to do this on their iPhone or their Android device. So what do you want people to take away? we got a few minutes okay. remaining. Sure.
1: So as I mentioned earlier on, the idea of this book is that we're going to explain in very simple language why we do one thing. And then the hope is the reader will do that one thing. And then on the basis of that one thing, we then explain something else in simple language do that thing. And that takes about the time it takes to drink a cup of coffee. So it's about three minutes. And what one's doing is accumulating a series of experiences, which act as a referent for this keyword meditation. So the hope is at the end of the 14 weeks, if someone just does this for 14 weeks, and it really is almost no time at all. They're going to be able to have a meditation practice they can rely on. Now, of course, if they then want to go on, as you said, and meditate for hours or explore various skillful means, they're welcome to do so. But the primary benefits of meditation are achievable in very, very short periods. And this is particularly valuable in modernity, where people have no time, And even more importantly, when they're being bombarded with sophisticated devices that attempt to advert their attention and the ability to recapture attention and have attention at choice is the great benefit that I think this book can bring pretty much to anybody in modernity who is dealing with this. because, Because these technologies are now totally pervasive. Everybody is exposed to them. And so dealing with the outbreak, the, the, the epidemic of alienation, in particular, and the epidemic of meaninglessness, and the epidemic of abandonment, the three phases of life, which are so characteristic, unfortunately, of modernity, all can be addressed once we take control of our cognition, and we take the throne of our being back. And we go, okay, I see what you're trying to get me to do. Do I really want to do that or not? And that capacity brings enormous feelings of well being, centeredness, groundedness, embodiment, all these good things which come along once we're able to control our reactivity.
0: And remember, our well, Go reactivity... out and get a copy of Three yeah. Minutes a Day by Richard it's, it's... Dixie. This is a great book. Great summation, Richard. Thank you for <laughs> okay. your time. This morning, I know you've got to rush off. You've got to teach a class. Uh, Very appreciative of of your wisdom and knowledge uh, and giving people, I'm just going to say this, a runway to meditation uh, before they maybe take off the plane. This is an opportunity. So for all of my listeners who've been wanting to get into this, this is the book to do it. For those that are into it, this is the book for you to rejigger what you maybe are doing. Uh, and give you a different uh, viewpoint and vantage point. Namaste to you, Richard. Thanks for being on. Namaste Inside to you, and thank you for the opportunity. Spending some time with uh, with our listeners. Okay. Thank you for listening to this podcast on Inside Personal Growth. We appreciate your support.